couple of just things first. Uh, last night, uh, a few of us went, so y'all know we work with the Hope Center in McKinney, Hope Women's Clinic in McKinney. Uh, it's just down Virginia. It's pretty close to Our Savior Lutheran uh, down there. And uh, Our Savior, uh, one of the pastors there, does a Bible study every Thursday at the Hope Women's Clinic for the husbands, boyfriends, the men uh, who, are, who, um, who have these pregnant wives, girlfriends, and whatnot, um, who are wanting to help them choose life. And... Um, this Hope Center in McKinney, if you remember that big freeze we had, I mean, I know everybody does. Um, when that big freeze happened, uh, they lost their entire building. Um, I can't remember, I don't know if it was a flood or a fire, but I'm pretty sure it was flooded and maybe something else on top of that. I don't remember the details. But back in 2020, is that when it was? Was that the year it was? It was 2020, 2021, whenever. And... Um, they lost everything at the Hope Clinic. Their building was destroyed. They had, you know, millions of dollars of medical equipment and all this stuff. And word got out that the facilities were destroyed. And um, it was a difficult time, you know, it was during COVID still. And Focus on the Family heard that they had lost all their stuff. And the next day, they uh, notified them they were... FedExing a new sonogram machine worth one point, what was it, $1.4 million. Sending them a new sonogram machine. In the process of all this, Hope and McKinney, uh, they found a new building where they, that they previously, they were only able to serve like uh, four, was it 400 uh, appointments a month or something like that to now uh, over double that. They've, they have more square footage at this new place, this new facility. Uh, three buildings instead of just one, they're all joined together. Um, so this Hope Women's Clinic in McKinney um, has become a really important, stable part of our community. And they do this gala as one of their fundraisers. And they invited our church, people from our church to attend uh, for, for free. Uh, they, they have tables there that people buy up tables and, and they need people to fill them. And so we gladly went and heard them talk about what Hope Clinic does for McKinney and the greater DFW area in being a, a voice for life and a place of support for life where they have clothing for women, for babies, baby supplies and everything uh, to help. Hope Women's Clinic, what we do is we've donated how many hundreds of Bibles um, and these bags of encouragement and blankets, the Stitch in Time did blankets, um, that uh, this is one of the things we do to help support them. So in recognition of that, they allowed us to come to be guests. And um, it was very nice. It was a very good, good gala, good food. Uh, and then the presentations were really good as well. We heard from Lila Rose who is a young lady out of California, believe it or not, who at the age of 15, she told us her story. She was raised in the evangelical church. She was reading a book at home uh, that she found talking about abortion some 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, and uh, she saw the pictures of the, an abortion procedure. And at that young age, at 15, she said, there is something wrong with this. There's just something not right. She said from that day, she began this 
uh, I guess you could call it, I don't want to call it a politi political action group, but she started this media group uh, to be a voice for those who don't have a voice, um, to be a media group uh, that is getting pro-life message out, um, not just for the pre-born, but also um, for the, the fathers and for the mothers, uh, and to get, to get a lot of these things out. So she, at the age of 15, started Live, uh, live Action Network. And this is, she's the one who had the cameras on and went and uh, pretended that she was a young girl looking to get an abortion and how the Planned Parenthood at the time that she went there was um, breaking the law and telling her all these things and saying all these things to her. And so she was one of the first ones to do that, and that's kind of how she got started. She is now the largest media group, uh, social media. They have over 6 million followers on Facebook, YouTube, and whatnot. And uh, she is the one whose her outfit is putting out all the press and exposing a lot of these things. Uh, also with um, David Daladin, right, the guy who's run into severe legal problems because of his stance uh, against a culture of death in uh, providing these women options who think they don't have any choice. And we heard her talk and speak a little bit about the pro-life fight now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. And that was a really interesting uh, speech to hear her say and to kind of talk a little bit about that. And uh, it was a really great evening. So next year, about this time, I think, um, I think our life group, we're going to talk about uh, having a table there um, that Emmanuel purchases and to advertise it a little bit better um, to get more participation to go there. It was at the Omni in Frisco at the Star, the Dallas Cowboys Star, and uh, they had the whole ballroom and it was filled with people. It was very encouraging. It was really a great thing to witness and see all these things. They had a couple of stories of people who benefited from the Hope Clinic, and their stories were really encouraging. It was really great. Um, one of the things Hope Women's Clinic is also doing that is interesting is um, they have recently been welcomed into um, the trafficking that's going on in DFW, uh, and also uh, women who are... Uh, you know, uh, working at women, uh, you know, as women of the night, prostitutes and whatnot. Um, and they are beginning to be a resource for all those women to help them, to treat them, to show them that there is, there are people who are willing to help. Um, but to not believe, Lila Rose's big thing is to be a voice so that people aren't just constantly hearing the pro-abortion voice. And because you think about it, who, you know, the social media giants, the entertainment giants, all of the giants are pro-abortion. And she, in fact, talked about a, an episode on one of the newest crime, CSI or something like that, um, about how um, on the sitcoms now, they're doing shows and plots about how all pro-life people are crazy how the, all they want to do is yell and shout and are, don't, want to, don't want to care for people. And um, she said there were two episodes back to back that made it obvious that they are working against us. Here at the Hope Clinic, one of the challenges they faced this last year is they were starting to see a drop in the number of patients showing up for their appointments. And they couldn't figure out why. 
until they, they have a team of social media analysts and people like that. And they started looking and they found that there was a group that was intentionally picking up all the appointments online and signing up for all the appointments on, for Hope Women's Clinic online so that those appointments were taken away so that people couldn't get them. So they were making fake appointments so that the calendar would be filled. This, they had no idea about it. You know, they just said for a couple weeks, they're like, man, where are all our people? Why are the numbers going down? So they did some digging and they found this group that was intentionally targeting them. That just happened over the last two or three months. So it's a very, um, you know, if you want to know where you're, where you're upsetting the devil, uh, look to see where he's most active. <laughs> um, and uh, they, they, they couldn't believe it, but they said, well, this is just the nature of our fight now, um, that uh, this is a fight well, worth it. And I encourage you next year uh, to, to be on the lookout for it, uh, the gala. It was, it was really great and encouraging and hearing the stories and hearing about Hope Women's Clinic and what they're doing. We also, as, as Jennifer Cinquepalmi has pointed out, we also do things with Human Coalition, uh, uh, a pregnancy resource place in Plano. So uh, we are very present in our community and helping. In addition, um, there at the gala, they had listed the churches all there who were supporting and helping. And, uh, oh good, you have it, you brought it, good. And um, there were five, let's see, let me see how many churches there were listed. I was going to see how many total. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, There are about 40 churches listed here, and five of them are LCMS churches that are supporting them. So we had, we had our church mentioned, Emmanuel Lutheran Church. We had Faith Plano is a supporter of it. Um, uh, our Savior, Lutheran McKinney, Prince of Peace Lutheran and Carrollton, and St. Paul Lutheran Church out of Plano. So of all these churches listed, there are five Lutheran churches. It's great. We are well represented. And I was very proud uh, to be there. And uh, it, was, it was really great. A, a very encouraging night. And um, I can't, can't speak highly enough uh, about it. Um, it, it, was, it was well worth our time. So be on the look on that. If you're interested, you can talk to somebody on the pro-life uh, group or just go to Hope, um, Hope Women's Clinic, McKinney, Texas. Go to their website, check it out, see their story and what they're doing. And um, it's, it's pretty good, pretty good. They, they, uh, in their, their building, um, their new building, they had a construction company come in and help them build it uh, at a highly reduced rate. Um, they were trying to rebuild at a time when building supplies were double and triple the cost, you know, back in 2021, 2020. And uh, they, a construction company came alongside and, and helped them. Uh, so it's a pretty, pretty great thing to see all these pro-life people coming together. Yeah. And the increase in number uh, when they got the new building went from 400 to 2,000. They were, yeah, their old building, they only had physical space to do 400 appointments a month. And now in their new space, they're able to handle, how many did you say? 2,000. So they're doing, they're doing great work there. Uh, so keep them and all um, the, the, these folks who are on the front lines putting their own safety at risk. Um, well, that was another thing Lila Rose uh, told us about um, 
the price that her family is having to pay for her public advocacy for those who have no voice. So um, it was, um, uh, check it out, it was good. But our church uh, is, is being a voice and, and being supportive, so this is a good thing. Uh, let us boast in the Lord. They're not seeing 2,000. They have that capability. Uh, I don't exactly recall how many appointments they have a month, what they currently do, Um, but it's pretty good. Uh, They offer all kinds of services. Um, And, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, they don't, they don't make it, uh, they don't offer sonograms and health checks and things like that and, uh, and say, you know, we're doing this free for you only if you don't get an abortion. They do it free for anybody. You know what I find interesting is Planned Parenthood, like when I started out out of teenage school, I didn't realize they did abortions. Mm. I I was, maybe because I didn't get into it and that was in my area, but I was like, I didn't, I didn't realize. I mean, it was promoted, it seems like always on TV things as, <coughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they have the, the, the lie that, you know, it's only 3% of what they do right. is the lie they, they tout. And uh, if it's only 3%, why does the majority of their funding come from, come from this, you know, from the government? That was another statistic that since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, uh, the claws have come out. Uh, the hackles have been raised. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, in particular, has made it her uh, life goal now to... She doesn't even talk about pro-life, but she wants to close all pregnancy centers. That's her goal. And uh, she herself personally gave $1 million to Planned Parenthood of her own money. <laughs> uh, publicly gave a, one, gave a $1 million gift to Planned Parenthood when Roe v. Wade was, turned, was, was overturned. So... Um, and Lila Rose was, was very frank and, and open about it. She said, I think abortions, what was it, um, went from, what, did, what was that statistic? She said it went from uh, 300 a day, is that what it was? Yeah, to, like 300 down to 250. Yeah, since the overturning of, or no, since, uh, since um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, it's, it's come down quite a bit. So that's a good thing. Um, uh, but unfortunately, now the the over uh, half the abortions now that take place are chemical abortions, where you get the pills and you do it at home. They actually I didn't know this. Uh, Lila Rose talked about this too that they actually have a Plan B reversal, and they've been they've been sending those pills out. That if a woman wants if she is, is led to have a chemical abortion and she takes plan B, which uh, she has 72 hours if she changes her mind to then take this other medicine that protects the baby. 
and uh, she said they've had, they've had quite a bit of success with that. So I uh, just wanted to bring you up to date on that. Um, that's what we're doing, to be on the lookout for it um, and to also let you know that we have opportunities if you uh, want to be involved in this, um, this ministry, if you want to call it that, um, with our church and Hope Clinic and uh, Human Coalition. All right, uh, so to our study, our topic at hand uh, in our books on page 38 is where we are. Uh, the Bible is only a book of faith. Um, we, we ended last week on archaeological evidence uh, to support the scriptures. Uh, and this is a, a wonderful thing that we have archaeology and, and science and the sciences on our side. Uh, but here then now, uh, the Bible is only a book of faith. How do we raise objections to that? Page 38. To say that the Bible is only a book of faith categorizes every person and place in the Bible record as fictional. There's ample archaeological evidence for things named in the Bible, including the city of Ur, the Hittites, the pool of Bethesda, and many other sites and people. Criticizing faith itself fails to account for the historical evidence on which Christian beliefs are based, particularly belief in the resurrection of Jesus. This statement, the Bible is only a book of faith, has become a cultural cliche in recent years. One sees it voiced in religious and non-religious media. An editorial in Biblical Archaeology Review stated, Facts are facts, and faith has no business dealing with the world of facts. Similarly, an editorial in The Economist commented on the newly constructed Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., Arguably, even talking about the facts of the Bible is a statement of faith. In short, both editorials say that the Bible is only a book of faith. This indicates that biblical faith is not based on historically verifiable evidence and therefore is not factually true or correct. Proponents of this statement argue, as did biblical criticism that began in the 1800s, that faith rather than facts prompted biblical writers to cite certain demographic, geographic, and human biographic information. These critics did not accept biblical information as historically authentic, when it was not also found in extra-biblical publications. Thus, their argument, the Bible is only a book of faith and has a long history along with at least three significant flaws. The first flaw in this argument. This flaw pertains to the statement's words, only a book of faith. The word only makes the statement dogmatically absolute. It implies that all named cities and geographic sites in the Bible are merely items of faith rather than empirical locations. This, of course, is nonsense. Countless modern tourists have visited places like Jerusalem, Bethlehem, the Sea of Galilee, and the Jordan River, all mentioned in the Bible. Similarly, if the Bible is only a book of faith, then all named individuals, such as Caesar Augustus, Herod the Great, and the Apostle Paul, are also just names of non-evidential faith rather than real persons. The second flaw. This flaw ignores the role of archaeology in corroborating the existence of numerous demographic and geographic data cited in the Bible. Critics once dismissed these as items of mere faith rather than accepting them as historical facts. Here are a few examples of how numerous archaeological discoveries have shown the Bible critics to be wrong. The city of Ur. This is always fun. 
when I take the, when I take the confirmands uh, to study about Abraham, and it says Abraham was from the city of Ur. <laughs> I say it's my favorite named city in the Bible, the Bible of Ur. <laughs> So if you don't know the answer to, you know, what's the name of a city, just go, and the odds are you'll be right. The patriarch Abraham hailed from this city in Sumer, today's Iraq, before he settled in Canaan. See Genesis 12. In the early 1800s, biblical critics rejected the historical reality of the city because extra biblical writings mentioned it nowhere. The critics argued that faith-minded writers in the Old Testament created this city. But in the early 1850s, J.E. Taylor discovered the city of Ur under deep layers of sand. Additional excavations revealed the city had thriving residents at least by about 2000 BC. Moreover, these residents used various musical instruments, did mathematical calculations, and knew how to write. The latter finding also discredited the Bible critics' contention that alphabetical writing did not appear, appear this early in history an argument they used to argue that Moses, about 1500 BC, could not have written about Abraham in the book of Genesis. Okay, so the history of writing uh, was one of these that has been proven to be true. The Hittites. The civilization of the Hittites is referenced in 15 books of the Old Testament. The Bible mentions Uriah the Hittite, the soldier whom King David placed in the front line of battle so he'd be killed. The Bible also notes that King Solomon had some Hittite wives. Bible critics in the 1800s who could find no extra biblical references with respect to the Hittites dismissed their existence as a legendary example of faith. However, in 1906, German archaeologist Hugo Winkler discovered more than 10,000 cuneiform clay tablets in Syria, corroborating the existence of the Hittites. This discovery decisively contradicted the critics' argument that the Bible is only a book of faith. The Pool of Bethesda. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 2 to 3, mentions the Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem with its five porches where Jesus healed a man who had been infirmed for 38 years. The Bible critics dismissed this account as biblical fiction. They argued that pentagonal structures with five porches, porticos, did not exist in ancient architecture. However, in 1888, archaeologist Conrad Schick discovered this pool with its five porches in Jerusalem. Since then, the structure of this ancient pool has been and continues to be visited by countless tourists from around the globe. Other discoveries. As already noted, archaeology has often proven Bible critics wrong when they concluded that certain demographic or geographic information only reflected the biblical writer's faith. Given this faulty assumption, Sir William Ramsey, a Scottish, oh, if he's Scottish, Sir William Ramsey, <laughs> a Scottish Bible critic who called the Bible a book of fables, set out to prove Luke's citation in the book of Acts wrong. His archaeological diggings in Greece and Asia Minor, however, revealed Luke's citations to be surprisingly correct. Ramsey's archaeological findings contributed to his becoming a Christian. In 1968, archaeologists found an ossuary in a Jerusalem cemetery of a man named Yohanan. 
It contained his heel bone with a four and a half inch iron spike driven through it, together with some remnants of wood from his cross. This crucifixion may have occurred in Jesus' time or later in AD 70 when the Jews rebelled against Rome. Before his discovery, some critics had argued that crucifixion victims were fastened to a cross by ropes, not by iron nails. They contended Jesus could not have been nailed to the cross, ignoring Jesus' asking Thomas the doubter to touch his nail-inflicted crucifixion wounds. Johannan's heel bone, with its visibly embedded iron nail, now at the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem, again shows that archaeology has effectively countered the critic's erroneous belief that the Bible is only a book of faith. Space does not permit citing additional archaeological findings that have authenticated numerous biblical sites, noteworthy persons, unique customs, and past events that critics had deemed legendary or as mere faith expressions of biblical writers. Thus, it is important to cite the renowned archaeologist and Jewish rabbi, Nelson Gleck. He said, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. So, um, the, uh, I didn't know about the crucifixion, the spike in the heel from this guy named Yohanan. Yohanan uh, Yo uh, is, um, the English version of that is John. So this guy's name was John and he was crucified, they think around 70 AD. Because remember in 70 AD is when um, the Romans came and crushed the Jews for their rebellion. And uh, so you can imagine the Romans crucifying more, more people. It was, a, it was a common way, it was a common way to, to, um, to take care of uh, rebel, rebels, um, thieves, uh, terrorists. Uh, remember the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus? You know, they were uh, insurrectionists, right? That's what they were, what they called um, thieves. Uh, so uh, it's, not, uh, it's not surprising then that they find evidence of another crucifixion and a heel bone with a four and a half inch spike. It's pretty bad. No, no, no. So, um, you know, one of the things too that I... Um, that I, I have been or had a little bit of a, it, it sort of brought thoughts and things to my mind too. And recognizing, you know, when, when Jesus is crucified, it's not like they had these aluminum ladders to lift Jesus up really high and to put him on, to put the cross beam, right? The cross beam, you know, when it talks about Jesus carrying his cross, it was, it was this piece, this cross piece that he was carrying, right? And um, so, so, so it, it, it goes. So then when they get the criminal to the cross, all they, all they have to do is, you know, have a couple guys on each side of the arm and you just lift, you lift the criminal up and you put, it, put the cross piece on the, the point that's standing up and um, then they're... That's, that's where you leave them. My point in all this is that in my mind, maybe it's just from being a kid, but in my mind, I always just for some reason pictured Jesus like way high up, you know, high, high up. Um, but in reality, 
because, you know, you picture the people hurling insults at him and all these things. And I don't know if I watched a movie or something that showed him being pretty high up. But, you know, Jesus, he didn't, he, he, you know, his face could have just been like this high. And so when it says the people were spitting at him and hurling insults at him, they could really just go up to his face and spit at him, just like that. You know, and they were yelling, you know, right there. You know, it was, they were uh, in, his, in his face uh, doing this. And uh, I, I think in my mind, I had pictured Jesus kind of being far away from it and, and just hearing these things. But uh, no, I think historically, uh, archaeologically, and from literature, when, when they crucified them, if you wanted to go and spit at the criminal, you could. That was part of their public humiliation. You wanted to go tell them how sorry of a person, how they weren't even human, right? Because nobody would do this to a human. <laughs> um, so the, those who are being crucified, uh, you know, they were, they were considered sub, subhuman. The stick. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it could, be, it could be not just because it's so high, but it also could be, I mean, it could be just standing to the side, you know, didn't want to get close to him. But then you also have the soldiers using their spears. But then they are also close enough to their knees that they're able to break their knees with a club. Remember? Because they had to go and break the knees of the criminals. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a couple of things in there that, that, you know, man, how did how did all this how did all this all this work? Um, so yeah, a couple of interesting data points there to sort of build a picture of this in our minds. Do we give the picture of height because so many pictures that we see of the three crosses is always up on a hill. Yeah, could be. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on a it's on a hill of some sort. Uh, it's at a high point. Um, and uh, this is also a theme in the Bible in the Old Testament of God coming to his people on, on the, the top of hills, on mountains, uh, and, and Golgotha there. There's a lot of paintings, too. I mean, you see, you know, the cross, Jesus and the thieves, and then you see people below the cross, that, and, the, and it's at least a person's height yeah. when you see. So I mean, just the paintings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, this is all just pure opinion on my part, too. Um, but to consider the fact that they, it was probably, you were within talking distance of this person, spitting distance and, and whatnot. Uh, hey, and Jessica had her hand up first. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, in, in cinema, I think a lot of times the aesthetic historically has been to show the elevated who to get that closeness to God in heaven. Mm-hmm. Oh. Those kinds of uh, things. But yeah, I think when you take out some of that grandiose, like, you know, in the movie mm-hmm. films, you know, you really get it up there. It's a little, little closer, a little more gritty. Yeah, and I, I preached a little bit on this. I, I could have, you know, my sermons really are about half as long as they really should be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Lord have mercy. Um, Wednesday, you know, I'll get to you, Linda, in a second. Don't let me forget you. Um, you know, Wednesday we heard the, the text, and we'll hear it again on, on Good Friday. You know, uh, the suffering servant is high and lifted up. 
you know, and there might be an element to artists and in our minds too of, of picturing this, uh, that that this is what it means to be lifted up. You know, as Moses lifted the serpent, the serpent, uh, so also must the Son of Man. And Jesus Himself says, "And I, when I am lifted up." So, yeah, I think there's an artistic expression to all of this uh, to get a point across, um, which is something I think people lose in art. That it's okay if art is not historically accurate, because art teaches us a greater point. One of the best examples of this is when you, uh, when you see a manger scene and Jesus is a little baby and the three wise men are there and people say, oh, that's not true. That's not right. The wise men weren't there for, you know, longer. It's like, no, you miss the whole point of having the wise men in the manger. It means Jesus's birth is for the whole world, right? And that's why the wise men are there even at the, even at the manger, in our manger scenes and Christmas pictures or our Christmas plays, right? Um, it's, it's artistic, it's teaching a doctrine. Uh, and sometimes, uh, sometimes I think Western eyes want everything to be just you know, historically accurate and all this stuff. Uh, and the Bible, um, the Bible is, is more picturesque, picture, more like an artist. Yeah, Linda, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, woman, your son, yeah, 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 and, um, and that's also one of the, you bring up that, that passage, uh, also too, why uh, we think Joseph is dead by this time, because if Joseph were not dead, then, you know, he wouldn't have needed to give Mary into John's care, uh, so we think that Joseph may have been quite a bit older than Mary uh, in, in that regard, or he, you know, died in a construction accident or something. We don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, another conversation that happens that's of interest, yeah, uh, to think about this. And I think that really is what, you know, something to think about uh, that the Bible wants to, that the Holy Spirit wants us to see in this crucifixion. Maybe this, the, both of these things, Jesus is so, you know, he's high and he's lifted up, but yet then again, he's right, right there. Uh, right close to us. So if we can be a little artsy, you know, we can say he's really high, but then yet he's also close, so close, you know, he's, he's, he's our representative. It's as if, you know, he's doing that on our behalf. He's enduring that for us. So yeah, a, a lot of fun. Okay, so the archaeology, um, there's been no archaeological discovery that has ever controverted a biblical reference. That's pretty encouraging. The third flaw in this argument, page uh, 41. The third flaw is that the Bible critics, like numerous other authors who have written on the topic, do not define faith. It appears that authors assume everyone knows what faith is, presumably a person's subjective belief not based on any historical reliable evidence. This view of faith without the critics specifically saying so, posits a blind faith. This faith in faith, better known as fideism, to see faith as based on no evidence, however, clashes with Jesus' pointing his followers to evidence to bolster their faith. He told skeptics to believe on account of the works themselves that he had performed since they did not believe what he had told them regarding his divine identity. 
This is part of our readings too today on Palm Sunday. Remember, there were a lot of people following him because of a sign he did in Bethany. What did Jesus just recently do now before Palm Sunday? He raised Lazarus. And, and some people believed and they were following. But then also, what did this do to the enemies of Jesus? Those who hated Jesus already, whose hearts were already hardened at him. What did they want to do after they heard about Jesus raising Lazarus? They wanted to, they wanted to kill Jesus, but also Lazarus. I mean, it's kind of silly, right? This guy just raised somebody from the dead. And you're going to go after him and try to kill him. <laughs> it's like, well, even if you're successful in killing him, he's going to come back. <laughs> he's going to get you. Um, but it shows just how blinded they were and why John references the Isaiah passage, that they were blinded, that they were blinded and their ears, they closed them. They did not want to believe the gospel. They wanted to believe uh, you know, what was in front of them. They wanted to not live by faith, but they wanted to live by sight. Here, we, hear, we are hearing how Jesus is pointing, how this author is pointing out that there was plenty of physical evidence. If you wanted to see a sign, there was plenty of them. But people did not believe still, even when they saw the miracles and the signs. And you know, that's still real today. I talk a little bit about communion today in the sermon. You know, these are signs. These are miracles and people reject baptism. They reject the Lord's Supper. They reject what Jesus says, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with you. People reject the signs that God is doing now. They don't, they don't want to see it. And it was the same when Jesus was there. There was plenty of evidence, plenty of signs, yet they did not want to believe. Uh, they did not trust. Um, so, you know, seeing does not mean believing. Uh, verse, verse, or page 42. Another example where Jesus valued evidence for a person's faith is the imprisoned John the baptizer who sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Matthew 11. Jesus did not tell the baptizer's disciples to tell him merely to have faith that he was the promised one. Instead, he said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Matthew 11. In short, Jesus pointed the baptizer to empirical evidence. To deny that faith is based on evidence contradicts the words of Jesus. In a similar vein, Luke the evangelist, well, you know, and this isn't just the New Testament either. Um, there's also the evidence and the signs of the Old Testament, Right? Remember when Moses went to Pharaoh and he did these signs, but then Pharaoh's magicians were able to do the same ones. Isn't that amazing? That's pretty, that's pretty scary. I mean, that, I, that's one of my favorite parts of the Bible when we are told that Pharaoh's magicians were able to do some of the same signs Moses could, like turning snakes into sticks and sticks into snakes. This is real stuff, people. This can happen. So it's not just the evidence, the empirical evidence and the signs in the New Testament, but God has been giving proof for his people always. Um, and chiefly the proof in the show is the death and resurrection of Jesus. In a similar vein, uh, middle paragraph, page 42, in a similar vein, Luke the evangelist underscored the significance of evidence for the faith for the early Christians. 
He told them that after Christ had risen from the dead, he appeared to his apostles, giving them many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, Acts 1-3. After his resurrection, Christ appeared and interacted with his apostles on several occasions. He wanted them to know and remember the evidence of his bodily appearances to strengthen their faith. Christ placed significance on knowing the evidence for faith. This reminds us Christians to consciously recognize that faith today is increasingly and erroneously seen as merely having faith in faith. This fallacious, it is funny. This reminds us Christians, uh, uh, yeah, to consciously recognize that faith today is increasingly and erroneously seen as merely faith is having faith in faith. This fallacious view of faith first appeared in our Western culture in the 18th century. The Age of Enlightenment hijacked faith from its biblical historical foundation. It depicts faith as not only contrary to what Christ taught, but also contrary to what his apostles saw and experienced. Here we need to recall the words of Peter and John, who, when ordered to cease preaching the risen Christ, boldly declared, We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Acts 4. This was an expression of their faith based on having seen the risen Christ with whom they had physically interacted after his resurrection. Faith without evidence is not only a stark departure from Jesus' linking faith to evidence, it is also a departure from the classic Christian concept of faith that consists of notitia, knowledge, assensus, assent, and fiducia, trust. This definition of faith harkens back to the early Middle Ages and to the Lutheran Reformation. The Reformers, like their Christian ancestors, saw the biblical knowledge of Christ's death and resurrection that promised them life and salvation as a vital element of their faith to which they assented and in which they trusted. Similarly, we Christians need to reaffirm and devoutly internalize this centuries-old definition that defines faith, knowing, assenting to, and trusting the biblical evidence. Failing to do so easily results in the erroneous view that the Bible is only a book of faith, wrongly implying that faith has no reliable knowledge base. This view of faith is reminiscent of the equivalent error, that believing and knowing have nothing in common. An article now, an article now about faith, written for Lutheran youth in a periodical named Arena One in 1960, asserted, To know is not the same as to believe. To believe is not the same as to know. In fact, if you know something, you no longer need to believe it. If this latter statement were true, it would mean the knowledge the apostles obtained by seeing Christ several times after his resurrection had nothing to do with their faith, when in fact this visibly based knowledge both prompted and sustained their faith. This article contradicted the New Testament's assurance that the faith of Christians is based on knowing, assenting, and trusting the biblical account that Christ has conquered sin and death by his crucifixion and bodily resurrection. It also ignored the important role that knowledge played for doubting Thomas. Seeing Christ with his crucifixion wounds and moved by the Holy Spirit, Thomas confessed, my Lord and my God, in John 20. It changed him from an obstinate skeptic to a devout confessor of faith. Thus, contrary to the article in Arena 1, knowing and believing are not mutually incompatible. They are complementary elements of a biblical Christ-centered faith. Conclusion. When we Christians hear or read that the Bible is only a book of faith, we need to recognize the statement's implication that biblical faith has no factual basis. 
the implication leads only to one conclusion, namely, faith is merely having faith in faith. But as we have seen from the evidence cited, biblical faith is based on historical facts, corroborated and illuminated by hundreds of archaeological artifacts. A right definition of faith is linked to the Bible's inspired knowledge, especially the eyewitness accounts of Christ's apostles. As Peter, who like his fellow apostles had interacted with the resurrected Christ, told his Jerusalem audience, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, Acts 2. This faith of the apostles was not faith in faith, but faith based on the historical event of Christ's crucifixion and bodily resurrection. That is why the early Christians declared, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, 2 Peter 1. Thus, we Christians firmly reject the statement that the Bible is only a book of faith. To the contrary, it is a book where our biblical faith is grounded on factual evidence. Through this faith, we, by God's grace, receive the promise of eternal life. This gift also motivates us to do good works, as we also, by His grace, sojourn here. Ephesians 2. All right. Very good. Um, so that's that threefold statement about faith um, is very helpful in this sense, and it's biblical. If you remember, in the book of James, I'm pretty sure, James says... Um, that's wonderful that you know, um, what does he say, um, that God exists. Even the demons do that. So the reformers, in talking about the threefold definition of faith, uh, knowledge, assent, and trust, um, attempts to get at that biblical doctrine that goes beyond just the historical facts that Jesus was crucified. Knowing that Jesus was a real man, a real person, that he was crucified, that he was raised from the dead, those are all knowledge. That's all knowledge. Those are all facts in knowing that. Um, but assenting to what that means and then trusting, assenting to that means that before God we are now righteous by faith. And then the third aspect of that, trusting, is says, that's for me. So knowledge, the historical fact, the, as the assent that this was an act of God, and then the trust, that was for me. So this helps sort of navigate some of these passages in the Bible. of, and, and I think it also helps us understand our fallen nature and wondering, how could people see Jesus and do all this stuff and then not believe? Well, they had knowledge, they had all that, but they refused to believe. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. And, and, and this is part of Paul's argument in Romans for the Jews as well, right? Because that's a big question mark. People, and people ask me this question all the time too. How could, the, how could God's own people who he rescued, how could they turn their back on him? They saw all these things. And St. Paul says, is it because God failed them? No. It's because they didn't want it. So uh, in order, Saint, part of St. Paul's argument too, though, is in order... To, to, to generate faith in the Jews in order to motivate, in order to awaken faith in the Jews, God called the Gentiles so that the Gentiles would see us and say, wow, maybe we've missed something. Now, that's, that's all in Romans, but anyway. 
part of part of trying to help uh, understand this this sort of this sort of discussion here. Even the reformers, the Lutherans, in the early days of the Reformation, were trying to teach people this three this threefold character of faith: knowledge, assent, and trust. Uh, so I hope you find that beneficial. Um, chew on it, think about it, uh, especially this week as we prepare for Easter. Any questions? Thoughts? Compliments? <laughs> the author, not for me. The author, not for me. Okay, let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask you to rightly prepare our hearts this week. May we find ourselves in your word, contemplating the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may faithfully uh, and joyfully uh, celebrate the Paschal Feast in sincerity and truth. We ask this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.